Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us today on episode 14 of the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast. I'm your host, Becky Lewis, and in today's episode, I get to sit down with the executive director for Read Aloud West Virginia, Dawn Miller. Dawn is going to share how her organization is working with parents, teachers, and other community members to instill a love of reading in all West Virginia children. Welcome to the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast, where we engage in educational conversations to strengthen early literacy in West Virginia. Are you ready to become a leader of literacy? Welcome everyone to our episode today, and we have a very special guest joining us, Ms. Dawn Miller. Dawn is the Executive Director for West Virginia Read Aloud. Dawn has worked for most of her life in journalism at the Charleston Gazette Mail, volunteering with Read Aloud West Virginia on the side for over 20 years. As a longtime classroom reader, former board member, and a seasoned reporter on educational matters, Dawn is an experienced literacy advocate. Read Aloud is lucky to have her innovative ideas and leadership to guide the organization forward. Good morning, Dawn. Good morning. Thank you. Can you tell us about the history and mission of Read Aloud West Virginia? Sure. Read Aloud is about 30 years old. It started uh, with a group of Kanawha County parents who were inspired by a book by Jim Trelease, the Read Aloud Handbook. Mm-hmm. And people, even back then, understood that the kids who were read to from the early years seemed to pick up reading in school more easily. And then when they read more on their own, they did better in school. So Read Aloud was founded around that concept to encourage children to read for fun and to encourage parents to read to children from shortly after birth, because then that becomes a habit and they do well in everything. And then it grew from there. After Kanawha County, then came Jackson and Fayette and Raleigh and Mercer. And at one point in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were Read Aloud chapters in 54 counties in West Virginia. Wow. They're not all exactly the same. They have different stresses, different priorities in different communities, as you would expect, as Mm -hmm. is natural. So then the organization went through a change. The umbrella organization it had been sort of turned over to to save on admin, they changed directions and decided they weren't so into direct service. And they got rid of the full-time, the one full-time staffer that Read Aloud had. And without just that tiny bit of staff to keep things going, the number of chapters started to drop. So that by 2007, it had dropped from 53 chapters to four. Wow. Yeah. At that point, a number of people who had been involved from the beginning got together and said, well, what's going on here? Is this organization still relevant? Should we care that it's clearly disappearing another year and we're not going to have it in those four chapters? That is when I was asked to come into a meeting And I had been just going to class, showing up every week, reading to the kids, sort of oblivious of all this going on in the background. And the sort of heartfelt, soul-searching conversation among those volunteers and those experienced organizers was that, yeah, it's more relevant than ever. And we need to take this back. And Mary Kay Bond, one of the founders, she came back to it at that point. She calls that the reboot. And it was, okay, we tried it this other way. It didn't really work. 
if we're really going to do read aloud, it needs to be its own entity and not be tucked under some other group that has competing priorities. So starting back from 2007, uh, some new people came on the board. Mary Kay volunteered her time for two years to serve as an executive director. And then we started raising some money. And now we have a very small but very energetic staff of two and a half people. And we have 30 chapters around the state. And I think that's amazing going from the 53 down to the four. Now you're back up to 30 and really growing stronger every year. I think that's wonderful because we know in the literacy world how important Read Aloud really is from birth. Indeed. And we learned a lot. So every time somebody says to me, well, if you've got 1,600 volunteers around the state and they're the ones who are the core of your program and they're reading to the kids and they're volunteers, why do you need a staff? And that's what we used to think. (laughs) But it turns out if you don't have at least a small group of people, and that isn't all we do, by the way, but if you don't have at least a small group of people whose day job it is to make sure that the volunteers are recruited and the volunteers go through an orientation and the and the flyers are sent out and we're all talking to each other and the grant applications are written and the forms to the IRS are finished and turned in. If you don't have at least a small staff to make sure all those things happen, it all just sort of the threads all come apart and it all falls away. Right. So I understand, and um, you just mentioned that it's a volunteer reading program. Can you tell us about that specifically, about how you train your readers to do the interactive read-alouds and that they make sure that it's engaging for the children that they're reading to? Absolutely. The volunteer readers are the face of the program, and it's the best well-known, and it's where it all started. It's really about one-fourth of what we do right now to fulfill this mission, to motivate children to read for fun. And like I said, we have about 1,600 volunteers, classroom readers around the state. Many of them read in multiple classrooms. So we're in more than, I think, 2,000 classrooms. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head at this moment. So we ask all of our volunteers to come to a one-time orientation, which is about 90 minutes. And it's very important to come together at least once. We talk to the volunteers about the benefits of reading to children. They're the traditional educational benefits. There are also social and mental health benefits. There are developmental benefits that are just now sort of being measured and really well documented. And so when our volunteers hear that, they begin to understand that this has value beyond even what they thought when they volunteered. And so it's an opportunity for them to be in a room with other people who are interested in the same thing It's an opportunity to hear some do's and don'ts and pointers on how to be a good classroom guest because we really do value quality. We want our volunteers get very good reviews from the teachers when we survey the teachers every spring. And it means something to take an hour, hour and a half before you go into the classroom the first time and just think through how you're going to behave, what to expect, what's okay and what's not okay have a little discussion about choosing books and ages and appropriateness and resources, and then have somebody, have an adult read to you in a way that is engaging and fun. Even our best volunteers sometimes come into this and they haven't been in a classroom since they were kids 
and they have memories of how classrooms are supposed to be. And some of those memories might be great and might be exactly what you want, but some of us have memories and we need to sort of consciously think about shaking loose this old expectation and reminding our readers we're doing this because we want the children to catch the habit from us. This is something we're doing for fun. It's not a test. There's no quiz. We are sharing this. And the other thing is, too, we give the readers permission to read things that they're excited about. Because sometimes, even with the best of intentions, they come to us and they say, well, I'd like to do this, but what do I read? And I say, well, what are you interested in? Do you like history? Do you like Civil War history? Do you like mysteries? Do you like art? What do you enjoy reading about? Because if you find the age-appropriate books about subjects that you enjoy reading about and, and authors and types of books that you yourself enjoy then you will enjoy reading it to the children and they will catch that from you. I was a classroom teacher where I read a first in a series to my kids to get them hooked. And it was always, I always picked series that I really liked. So Percy Jackson was one of them. And um, the kids, like you said, they would just pick up that enthusiasm that I had for my favorite series. And so then you would see the kids that really clicked with that series and my enthusiasm, and then they would demolish the entire series in my classroom. Mm-hmm. But as you know, as those children are doing that, they are gaining vocabulary, but they're also learning how words are put together. They're learning how sentences are put together and how paragraphs are constructed and how dialogue works. And they're also bumping into ideas that may be new and strange and ethical dilemmas. And they're developing sympathy and empathy for characters and all of those things, their little hearts and brains are putting together and they're becoming a more complete human being, better able to interact with others and empathize with others and solve problems. And in addition to the very standard testable things like vocabulary and Uh, picking out the topic sentence of a paragraph or understanding the purpose of a text. Those are things that are fairly easy to test. But how about how well you do when you are in a strange new situation or you suffer a setback or you're frightened or have anxiety about what's going on in the world? (laughs) All of these things reading contributes to, it contributes to our ability to handle and in, and those are things we don't really, you know, quite understandably, we right. don't get tested on that in school. So how does Read Aloud engage children outside of the classroom, like, for example, during the summer months or right now during the um, pandemic? Good question. So normally during the summer for about the last five years, we have been running a program we've started calling Summer Book Binge. We started it at Little Crichton Elementary School in Greenbrier County. It's based on research uh, by a couple of people in Tennessee, Richard Allington and Anne McGill Franzen. And what they found Mm -hmm. was that some number of books, half a dozen books or so, freely chosen books given to children at the end of the school year did more to prevent summer learning loss than I think it was $3,000 worth of summer school. This was an alarming bulletin when my predecessor, Mary Kay Bond, discovered it in a meeting. And she thought, because summer learning loss is a big deal. I'm sure your listeners know. 
some children have experiences over the summer that benefit them and they maintain or even increase their reading skill. So they come back in the fall right where they left off, if not better off. But many children lose skill over the summer. And the impact of that is more than just having to spend part of the next year making it up. The impact of that is that loss is cumulative. Every year that child comes back and is a month or two or three behind a, a peer who didn't lose. And then every, and the child does make progress over the school year. But then the next summer they drop back again and the next summer and the next summer. So that by the end of their school career, they can be a year or two years less proficient in reading than some of the other kids in the class. Mm-hmm. So read aloud applied for and got some grant money and picked out a school that was small enough to handle that uh, was at the bottom of its county in reading scores and that um, was stable enough in its attendance that if we compare one year to the next, we're hitting mostly the same children. Some schools, uh, so many kids transfer in and out that it's really hard to compare what's going on in second grade one year with what went on with the kids in third grade the next Mm -hmm. year, if you know what I mean. So this was about five years ago, and what Read Aloud did was um, buy a bunch of books, very good, high-quality books, inexpensively through a wonderful organization called First Book and some from Scholastic and wherever else we could get decent books, and then make a little order form for all the kids and took a box out to the kids, let the kids preview the books, handle them, look at them. We asked their teachers to recommend books, to talk them up, to help children figure out which books they would enjoy. Children filled out their order forms, sent them back to us. We got some volunteers together. We bought nice pretty tote bags. We put packed every child's book. We put book plates in the front of every book with the child's name on it because book ownership is important. It's a very labor-intensive process. And so we pack all these orders up and take it back to the school. The school organizes a big pep assembly. It's a big deal. It's like, Oprah, <laughs> you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. Except here's uh, Millie's bag of books, and here now it's Johnny. And then all every child is called up and gets their bag of books they chose with their name in the front, a uh, a name tag on the bag, a little ribbon, because, you know, we got to make it nice, a card inside for the parents explaining the value of reading over the summer and the importance of preventing summer learning loss. So after two, three years, Crichton went from the bottom of their county in reading scores to the top. And when I asked the principal about it, she said, absolutely, that was part of it. I mean, there were other things at play there, but that was absolutely part of it. So meanwhile, we went out and applied for different grants. We have done that program at Gawley Bridge in Fayette County and at Clear Fork in Raleigh County. Gawley Bridge is also seeing their scores go up. I don't have any data on Clear Fork yet. We've since gone out to other funders, and this summer we were planning to do the same thing at Inwood Primary in Berkeley County and at Jefferson Elementary, which is 400 children in Wood County. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic came. (laughs) And this is a very labor-intensive process that involves multiple trips back and forth to these schools, talking these books up to the kids in person, the kids handling the books in person, 
and then we get volunteers together to pack books. You know, it's like a it's a it's a t- eight or ten hour day of, of of seven or eight people in a room handling all these books together. So we we hadn't bought all the books, but we bought most of the books. And I was desperately all through the end of March trying to figure out how to salvage this program. I even we even applied somewhere else to try and get some more money because we thought, well, we'll mail the books to all the kids, and that's a huge expense. But and we didn't budget for that postage, right? So I need to come up with some more money. So in the meantime, so we were mm-hmm. pursuing that avenue, and at the same time, we we're pursuing another avenue. We hadn't bought all the books for Inwood yet, so we were on the phone with First Book saying, "Is there any way we you all could ship directly to the kids if we can if we can do this?" And they can. And so what we've done instead is we've set all of our books aside. And so Mm -hmm. that's for next year. We've gone back to our funders. We've scrounged up. We have done everything we can to say, okay, let's set aside next year's book money (laughs) over here. We've already bought these books. They're sitting in our book room. They'll keep. It's not like milk, right? They'll keep. They'll be good next year. And so we've started over. And we're working with all the schools to provide paper forms where the children need paper forms to do an online form where they, the families can handle an electronic form. We're going to send them information. We're going to ask them to fill out their forms. And then we're going to relay all that information to First Book. And First Book has a warehouse that's still functioning during all this. And they're trying to do all their proper distancing and keep things moving. And they're going to package and and put and slip. As we pay them a little extra, they'll slip a sheet of book plates in there that we've made. They won't have every child's name on them because that's more than First Book could handle. But they'll have a blank on it that the child or the parent can write their name on and stick their book sticker inside their book. This book belongs oh, to. Yeah. You see what I mean? And then they're and then First Book's going to ship that to each that of their so children. Cool. So that is. That is about 872 children getting six books here at the end of the school year that they chose, that they freely chose. We won't have the big pep assembly and call everybody's name, but we can't do that right now. So we're looking at uh, encouraging people to get online and when their books come, share the news, share the information, make recommendations. We're trying to preserve that social aspect as best we can under the limitations we have to live under to for everybody's good health. So, so anyway, that is, so we're still getting those 5,000 some books out this summer. Uh, but it's it's been a scramble. <laughs> it sounds like it. And but we're doing it. And for these um virtual celebrations and recommendations, do you have um a website that you're gonna ask them to post on or a social media site? We haven't gotten that far, but read aloud W V on Facebook. Relo West Virginia on Perfect. Facebook. I'm sure that'll be involved. Some of the chapters have their own Facebook pages. Berkeley County, uh Fayette County, I believe. Several of the chapters have their own Facebook pages. What support does uh, Read Aloud West Virginia have for families? Um, well, the book distribution is one of the main ways we try to help families be the sort of parents and, and, and first educators that they want to be. And then in the days when we could have you know public gatherings, 
We would show up anywhere we were invited to talk to parents and grandparents about the importance of reading and what they're doing. And then we would help organizations, schools, local pre-love chapters, anybody who wanted to. We would help them put on nice supportive events for families. So one of our most popular ones grew up out of southern West Virginia. Mm -hmm. It's called Snuggle and Read, where we would help a group, a school or a church or whoever, get hold of some nice books that are appealed to, in this case, little ones, preschoolers or kindergartners or young ones. And then sometimes a church would make fleece blankets or sometimes we or they would buy inexpensive fleece blankets. And then... And then the families are invited in for a little party, a little gathering. And there's usually refreshments. If it's a wintertime thing, maybe there's hot chocolate. I, I attended one at uh, George C. Weimer Elementary in St. Albans where they had hot chocolate and pastry. It was breakfast. It was before work and before school. It was the loveliest thing. It was a cold February morning. And every child gets to choose a book and choose a blanket. And then they and their adults who came with them literally spend time sitting. They snuggle under their blanket and they read their book. And the pictures from events like this are just delightful. The kids love it. They get to sort of sit and cuddle with their adult they brought. They get a nice little blanket. They get a new book. And what I love about this event is it models and you and spend you spend time on the very activity that you're trying to promote. So a lot of times, you know, it's like we give somebody a book, but then we want to we make time to do the craft, or we give somebody a book, but then we make time to I don't know run relay races or something. It's like the it's almost as if we can't share books in each other's company. What I love about our events is we get together and now we're going to read because this is what we're doing. This is what we're saying is important and we're making time for what's important. So snuggle and read is one. Another version of that is a flashlight night, which I love because I love flashlights. (laughs) I love, apparently I love lights and um, the kids all get a flashlight and a new book and you lower the lights in the cafeteria or the gym or wherever you're having the Mm -hmm. event, and everybody just sort of gathers around their little glowing place. And it really does focus the light and the attention on the book for a while. And, of course, you know, who hasn't stayed up late after you're supposed to have the lights out and be asleep and been hunkered down under the covers trying to get to the next chapter of the mystery? And it sort of it shares that experience and that fun with with another generation of kids that's great well I know we could talk about read aloud all day and it's one of my favorite topics and it's one of your passions thank you again Dawn for being on here thank you we're going to wrap up here and I'm going to ask you one final question what is one tip or piece of advice that you can give our listeners out there around read aloud uh one piece of advice I would offer if I could only choose one is to not be afraid of what it looks like in your family. It's never perfect. I have encountered adults who think that the first time they tried to read to their child and the child didn't want to and they wanted to stack blocks or they wanted to drive their little car around the living room. And I've known parents to sort of give up and say, well, look, my child isn't into it. My child doesn't like it. It's not our thing. And my advice is keep doing it. Do it for fun. Don't make a small child sit and be absolutely still. 
just read, read out loud, do it every day, and and the child will come to you. It's okay. A, a little child can stack blocks or drive their car around the living room while you're reading. It's okay. It's fine. When they are interested, they will come to you. For additional information, please visit our website at wvde.us forward slash leaders of literacy and click on the show notes for this episode. Want to learn more about being a leader of literacy? Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single installment. Next month, I'm welcoming back my co-host for the month, Brandy Turner. And this month, our focus is going to be on summer slide which is a phrase that is used to describe that backward slide that many children make in reading and math skills over the summer. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.